time. I don't know what that means. Broadcasting high atop Sioux Nation with a Chinese-made microphone. I am your host, Corey Hussein, with Clemens. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. good. How are you? You have a good Labor Day weekend. Yeah, it was great. Got moved into the new place. You had to down. move. There's yeah. nothing enjoyable about moving. No. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> nice new studio setup, though. I like it. Yes. Um, yeah. Still a work in progress, but we are doing great. Everyone's giving you um, crap about the wood paneling, and I just don't. I I like it. I think it's I think it's a nice floor. Oh, Maybe get like a 1970s Winnebago little miniature car oh. you can park behind it, or I like it. I like it. It would go like oh, right here. Yeah, like that, would, that would be. Yep. That would be. Yep. I like it. I like it. Uh, text your ideas for the uh, back of the studio for Clemens' uh, little panel area back there. All right. Anyway, enough about enough about us. We have a very special yes. guest joining us now. I have I've just gotten a chance to barely talk to this man, but I stumbled across him on podcast guests. And this was his background information. It goes, uh, stereotypical army brat, family dysfunctional before it was trendy, older than dirt. What is such a young guy like me doing in such an old body? So, I mean, right there I was told. Oh. But <laughs> turns out he uh, uh, enlisted in the army, went to Vietnam, uh, and then uh, in 1974 converted to Christianity. And... Um, has been in the ministry ever since. So we're very honored to uh, have uh, Reverend Jack Hager joining the show. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Hey, it's my honor and my privilege. Can we call you Jack? Is that Please do. My legal name is John, but I much, much, much prefer Jack. Okay. I saw that and I was very confused because I went to type in uh, your name when I was showing the other guys who was coming on the show and I put in Jack Hager and I, it wouldn't pop up. I'm like, God dang, I thought for sure it was Jack Hager. The wrestler did, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and thank you so much for coming on our show. We, we appreciate having it you. It really is my pleasure. Now, uh, uh, Jack, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning here because you have lived a very interesting life. Just from what I, that very small segment I read in your bio, uh, I know you've published a book uh, later on, but you know, what, gets, what gets you to this point right here? is what I was sort of curious about. So uh, you mentioned there that you grew up in a dysfunctional family. You left the house when you were 14. Like, what did you do for work? Or how did you? I, I had a job. I, school, for some reason, was not academically hard for me, uh, which may have been part of my problem. I got bored easy. I began stealing when I was 14, just got busted a couple of times as a juvenile. Unfortunately, they did the same thing they do now, slap you on the wrists. I wish they would have taught me that actions have consequences, but instead they just gave me lack of respect for the criminal justice system, which I still have, but that's another story. Um, graduated from high school in 1965, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, they wrote books about my class. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. I had a couple of scholarships, didn't want to go to school. So I went down and talked to my handy-dandy recruiter, Army recruiter. He took all the tests and junk, and he said, Mr. Hager, you are exactly what we're looking for. I should have smelled something at that point. And he said, if I enlisted for four years in the Army Security Agency, not only would I not go to Vietnam, I wouldn't even go overseas. I think he had his fingers crossed. 
So from there, I did go in the military a couple of years in Korea, the couple of months in Germany, the rest in Nam, got out. My drug of choice in high school was Coors Jack Daniels and Johnny Walker Red. I couldn't even pronounce marijuana. It was downtown LA, not where I was living. But I introduced myself to marijuana and some other drugs while I was in the army, not because of the army. I made my choices and my choices made me. Came back from Vietnam very disenchanted, not so much with the way we weren't welcomed back, but just with the fact that that war could have been won and they wouldn't let us, meaning the government, meaning the people. Very bitter, uh, probably not suicidal, but I just didn't give a rip about anything. Uh, through a string of coincidences, I met a young lady. She introduced me to some guys she worked for and for the next few years dealt in drugs on the West Coast. Uh, made a lot of money. Everybody's heard those stories. The party came to a halt in 1973 when I was arrested in San Angelo, Texas, incarcerated in, in Tom Green County Jail. I don't think it was after the comedian, but whoever Tom Green was. I had California charges, Oregon charges, and federal charges. Uh, Oregon got first dibs. I don't know if they did rock, paper, scissors or what the deal was. So a few months later, I was extradited back to Oregon, eventually pled no contest, was sentenced to 10, did four. In jail, before I got to prison, I converted to Christianity, got saved, born again, whatever term floats your boat. Um, so the first four years of my Christian life were spent in Oregon State Prison. Was paroled, went to a Bible school, and here I am. So what what was it um i mean what was your expectation when you found out that you were fine you were actually going to go to ne vietnam after thinking well you can't sit along here but in korea we had a mission um if i tell you what we did i have to kill you so i'm not going to do that but in korea we had a mission there were 10 of us and i think the oldest guy in the unit was probably 24 and the agency we reported right to the director of the National Security Agency. We bypassed everybody else. Nobody knew what we did. We didn't know what we did, so why should anybody else? But everybody was nervous around us. The 10 of us were smart enough to know if we did our job, nobody would mess with us. So for 25 months, six days, three and a half hours, but who counts? I had a important job, I think. Had a great job in a great country. It was a year-long tour. I extended for a year. I wanted to extend until I got out, hook up with a Korean chick and open a bar and stay there the rest of my life, but they wouldn't let me. So after two, after two tours, you fill out what they call a dream sheet. I put in for Sinop, Turkey, Thule, Greenland, and some other hardship tour because I still didn't want to go to Nam. So the military and its never-ending wisdom sent me to Germany, which is typically a three-year tour. I reported to the commanding officer in Germany, who happened to be a black guy in 1968, and he looked up at me after he said, uh, says here, Sergeant, you're an E5. I said, very good, sir. I am. And you're on your first enlistment. And I said, yep. And he looked at me and he said, you don't deserve your stripes. I'm going to do everything I can to bust you. Right away, I knew this wasn't going to be my favorite character. And the only way out of Germany was either re-enlist or go to Nam. So I 1049, I volunteered to go to Nam, not because I wanted to be John Wayne, but I needed to get away from this jerk. So when going to Vietnam, by that point in my life, there was a rock song going around in those days, don't want to live, don't want to die. Basically where I was, I just didn't care. Uh, in Vietnam, Vietnam was a lot like prison. I learned a lot there, don't want to go back. Uh, I'm afraid the lessons we should have learned in Vietnam were repeated in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Um, am I bitter? Yeah. Uh, I'm not disappointed that I served. I'm just bitter at the way you- the government, quote unquote, fights wars. Do you find uh, do you find it ironic now that after you have experienced the disenchantment of Vietnam and the after effects of you know what that did? Now you're helping young men that are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq that experience. I mean, they have to have similar. I mean, I I don't I don't know. I would just imagine you would have to see similarities. Yeah, there are some. Their, their combat was different than our combat. Uh, house to house, usually, not jungle stuff. Um, but I can relate to them in ways that's the same way I can relate to prisoners in ways that other people can't because been there, got the T-shirt, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm just hopeful that I can help them. Obviously, because of my faith, I want to see them come to Christ. But more importantly, I want to see them live. Not more importantly, but I want to see them live and as you know, the suicide rate among veterans is supposedly 22 a day, and I'm not sure that's accurate. You think it's more? I wouldn't be a bit surprised. You know, a lot of suicides are for the sake of the family, whether it's a teen or an adult, reported as something else. And suicide rate for teens is skyrocketing. I don't know that for a fact. There is an organization called 22. Yeah, and they, no, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of them. Yep, good people. Uh, I just don't know if the number is deadly accurate. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, what What do you think, though? I mean, do you think the numbers for suicide were similar to vets coming back from Vietnam that they were for people who had to go through uh, Iraq? And, I mean, it, was that the feeling that back then a lot of people were committing suicide from Vietnam? You know, I don't remember it. I haven't researched it. I think, you know, that was when PTSD became a real diagnosis. And I think like a lot of diagnoses, which probably isn't even a word, that it's overdiagnosed. And, you know, sometimes like a kid with ADD or ADHD, I don't doubt there are things like that. But medication shouldn't be the first resort. And I think a lot of guys are walking around legally sedated when maybe there could be more help for them. Um, but PTSD, I, I don't, I know none of the few guys that I stayed in touch with, none of them dusted themselves. And I, I don't remember hearing much. I unfortunately hear a lot about a Vietnam vet freaks out and does something stupid, but as far as killing themselves, I'm not sure. It's a good question. Um, it just seems like there's, definitely correlations between the the trauma that comes from that. Like when, and and you're saying when you got out, you had a, I mean, what was it? How long of a stint did you have before you ended up in prison? Uh, July 15th, 1969 to December 3rd, 1973. So about three and a half years or so. Uh And then you were in prison for how long? Just under four years, four years. And, at that point, it was when you started to look at Christ for um, guidance in your life, would you say? Or was it after you got out of prison? No, it was in, in the jail in Texas. 
they found some drugs, which is not unusual because drugs are easier to get in jail and prison than they are on the street. The unusual thing is they punish us. They took the TV set out. We couldn't watch Sesame Street anymore. They took the poker cards out. They took the cribbage boards out. They took everything out except the religious junk. And that's exactly the way I looked at it back then. I had never been in church except for weddings and funerals, thought Jesus Christ was a cuss word alone, knew nothing about nothing. But after a couple of days of having nothing to do, I went over the pile of books and kicked through them. And there, obviously there were a bunch of Bibles there, but I was a man, I did the crime, I could do the time. Didn't need this religious hunky, hunky bunky stuff. But at the very bottom of the pile was a little paperback book with the word prison in it. And I said to myself, self, why don't you re read this book? You've never been to prison before. You've been in jail a few times. Read what this turkey has to say about prison. Disregard the science fiction religious stuff. And that was my, it was a World War II vet, alcoholic, a lot of similarities to me. Uh, in jail, was visited by a chaplain and converted to Christianity. I don't remember how much time he did, but at that when I got in touch with him after I got out, he was pastoring a big church in San Diego, and he's died since that time. But that was my introduction, and he kept quoting the Bible, so I figured, hey, I've got nothing else to do. So I picked up a Bible, started reading, and eventually was convinced and convicted and committed my life to Christ. If I share my faith, my testimony, that's the Christian buzzword, in a church or someplace, I typically start with, I've never been witnessed to. Nobody's ever tried to share their faith with me. And I've never asked Jesus into my heart. Both those things are true. Uh, the Jesus in my heart, the prayer that some Christians refer to, isn't found anywhere in the Bible. That usually wakes up grandma and wakes up the teenagers, and they tune into what I have to say. You, I mean, what, how long of a transition before, you know, opening up the book and to the part where you're probably five or six weeks in the jail. You, you feel like you learned more in prison than you did in, uh, in Vietnam. Learn more about important stuff. Uh, I never desire to be locked up again, but you sure have a lot of time to read and study and take correspondence courses. And I soaked up everything I could and, I can't, I can't, there's several, but I can't even imagine doing time and not knowing how to read. And there's way too many guys in that pickle where they just do time. You know, the saying is don't, don't do time, redeem the time. But uh, too many guys just do time. And they're offered, most prisons offer courses, GED, but they don't take it because that's cooperating with the man and they don't want to cooperate with the man. I can understand anybody going to prison once. I cannot understand doing life in the installment plan. Two years here, three years there, two years here. What do you, uh, I guess, when it comes to when you were in prison to you pastoring in these prisons, do you feel like a lot of, a lot of it is just to pass time, this, you know, the being religious? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Guys will pretty much do any. I mean, I even took 16th century English literature to get out of my cell. <laughs> so most guys will do anything to get out of the cell. And you know, some people, some street people, free people, occasionally church people will find out what I do and they'll say, why do you waste your time going into prison? Aren't there a lot of phonies in prison chapel? And I say, sure there are. Why should prison church be any different than your church? <laughs> they don't like that, but it's true. You know. yeah, absolutely. 
I'm not well, known for my tact. Are you are you affiliated with any type of uh, organization? Yeah, there's a small ministry here in St. Joseph called Midland Ministries that I'm part of. Uh, we do primarily youth ministry. We oversee Bible quizzing in Mongolia, uh, Bible quizzing in Jamaica, and along with the Bible quizzing goes normal church services, etc. And my prison ministry is under that umbrella. But we're, I, I hate this term, we're a parachurch ministry. We're not tied into one denomination. We just try to focus on the essentials and try to work with everybody. Uh, but as you probably know, Christians love to fight each other, and I try to stay out of those fights. Why do you think there is so much? I mean, I, yeah, I say, it, yeah, we, it's like the disciples. You know, why did they always have to bicker about who was best? Well, it's just that's C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said pride is the chief sin. I think he nailed it. I've already figured out I'm too old now, probably. But if I ever started a church, I got the perfect name. We're the only ones at the right church. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I probably yeah. have people coming. I've been to that mm. church, actually. <laughs> Everybody oh, will want to show Don't up. get me started. <laughs> uh, We're our own worst enemy. Well, yeah. how does it, I mean, how does that get resolved, though, Jack? I mean, because in the end, in the end, the people inside these different churches all have a genuine, you know, I'd like to believe they all have a genuine belief in Christianity and wanting to do what's right, whether they accomplish it at the end of the day or not, you know, that's sin. But how, how do you get their leaders to get together and quit this bickering? I think the only way is for them to understand that the main thing is the main thing and the main thing is Jesus. There's, there's a few things that I would die for, okay? Uh, the deity of Christ, the blood atonement, the resurrection of Christ, the uh, uniqueness of Christ. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Um, there's probably a couple other things that I can't think of right now, but those are things I would die for. More importantly, they are things I'd let my family die for. You know, a preference is something you'll argue about. A conviction is something you'll stand for and die for. And what I consider to be a biblical conviction is something you let your family die for. And that list is really short. But I think if you know, they, they fight over things like, can you lose your salvation? Our tongues for today, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, don't give a trib. They fight over Mickey Mouse stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. People have been arguing for 2,000 years. Um, and again, my cynical attitude, I'm not sure if I'm a cynic or a realist, but I think some of these things are so entrenched that there, there will be individual people who will say, I got to get out of here and become part of another church. But as far as a entire church coming to their senses, if you will, only God can do that. He's fully capable of doing that, but I haven't seen it yet. I, there's this talk of a one world government followed by a one, a one world faith, a one world religion. And I've heard, you know, people discuss that this would be the Antichrist. Other people, you know, are saying the Antichrist is already here. And I, what is your take on the Antichrist? Is it is it a false religious god that everyone goes to? And I, I, I would say the latter. Uh, the Book of Revelation ties in with other books, but it's still pretty fuzzy to me. And 
sometimes people call me up and say, Jack, can you preach? Yeah. Would you talk about eschatology, the fancy word for end times? And I said, I can give you my eschatology in one sentence. Jesus is coming back. He's coming for me. He's not going to be early. He's not going to be late. End of story. I don't know about all the other stuff. Uh, one of my deep concerns is too many American Christians look at our economy, look at something they don't like, and they say, Jack, don't you think Jesus is coming back? Oh, yeah, it's all about the United States. It's got nothing to do with the United States. God so loved the world, not the Republicans, not the pro-life people, uh, not the King James only people. And I think America sometimes gets its American Christians get their faith mixed up with their patriotism. And I'm not saying patriotism is bad. It is bad if it trumps your faith. I just take a quick second here and uh, mention some of the comments coming in. We got Lobo Fish saying, what is up, Phantom Fact fans? This is very interesting. Uh, got a comment from Naomi. And then Conster says, it is very interesting. I've known Jack for a lot of years from Conster326. So no idea. Some people watching. So that's exciting. Such a deal. After you gave me the link, I sent it out to my people. So Oh, yeah. I got People are watching. Uh yeah, there's always, there's always people watching. So that's it's exciting. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. well, uh, one thing I'd like to say is probably one thing that you hear more now than than you did before, which is thank you for your service. Because um, I would like to also kind of rewind a little bit too, because when you went into the service or when you were in high school, this was just you said you graduated in 1965, right? Yes, sir. So this is just a couple years after um, JFK was assassinated. So like, did that like play a part in you wanting to serve your country? Like right out of high school? I'm afraid my motives were, I just didn't want to go to Nam. I didn't want to get drafted and go to Nam. Um, my primary motive probably wasn't the best it should be, but I didn't, I didn't and don't regret it. Um, uh, 1965 was a pivotal year in a lot of ways. Uh, again, there are the, the class of 65. There's whatever happened to the class of 65. There's a lot of sociologists who agree that 1965 was a pivotal year in a lot of things. Drugs were becoming more prevalent. Um, the tradition, I guess, of the woman staying home and uh, was rightfully, in my opinion, being broken. Just a whole lot of stuff was changing. And Vietnam was in the early days in 65, but it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out they're going to be drafting great numbers. So my motivation was, I don't want to go to Nam. I don't want to shoot anybody. I don't want to get shot. Um, but while I was in the service, probably my patriotism took a hit. Uh, for instance, I was in Korea when the North Koreans took the Pueblo, that most people nowadays have no idea what, what happened. But the Pueblo was one of our spy ships. The North Koreans seized it. Uh, the guys tried to break up all their top secret information. One guy was killed. Those people spent a little over a year in a North Korean prison. When that happened, and they let us know, because we were supposedly intelligence people, when they told us that what had happened, I knew we were in trouble, because because of my security clearance, I knew that everything we had in South Korea was nuclear which is kind of stupid. So by the time some jets from Japan got there with conventional weaponry, the ship was already in the Korean harbor. But I didn't think we'd sell those guys out. I thought we'd go after them. But in my opinion, we sold them out. I was in Germany when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. 
we knew about that two weeks ahead of time. We rolled up on the border, watched it, gathered intelligence, did some other things, uh, got to Vietnam right after Tet 68, and very, very quickly understood that they were not going to let us win the war or even fight the war in a way that might preserve lives, American lives. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a really impressive story. And like, you know, in today's terms, like you coming home would be like, you'd be looked at as like a hero, but after Vietnam, you know, we all know how, how things ended and, you know, it's, did that? Well, I mean, we landed at Travis Air Force Base, the Freedom Bird did. And because of the protesters, we had to stay in the aircraft for a few hours, hot, miserable, most of us stunk pretty bad. They finally oh, released us. They had some Air Force police create a corridor between, but the protesters basically overran the base. So the Air Force police and maybe some state cops made a corridor between them, and we all filed off single file. And the first chick, oh, I'm sorry, if that offends somebody, deal with it. The first girl I saw was a stone-cold, beautiful, blonde girl yelling at the top of her lungs, how many babies did you kill in Vietnam? I just ignored her. There was an old crusty Marine behind me, and he was smarter than I was. He said, only as many as I could eat. I don't think she heard him, but yeah, we were not welcomed home. The first thing we wanted to do was ditch the uniform. Thankfully, during the fiasco of Iraq and Afghanistan, even the people that were against the war, probably rightfully in my opinion, weren't against the warriors. And because of that, I wear a lot. Of, I didn't for a long time, but maybe a year or two ago, I started wearing a Vietnam vet hat, et cetera, because I could connect with veterans and uh, a lot of people doing the thank you for your service stuff. In fact, every now and then somebody buys me a meal because I'm wearing the hat. I tell them I picked it up for a quarter at Salvation Army. They're not sure whether to believe me or not. But yeah, it's uh, you don't really need the attaboys, but you don't need to be hated. And I'm glad they didn't do it to the young guys that came home from Afghanistan and Iraq, but the guys that came home in body bags for nothing. Yeah. I'm not smart enough to know whether we should go into a war or not go into war, but if you go in, you win, you do whatever it takes to win. And we certainly didn't. I was with the 11th armored Cav. My CEO for most of the time was Colonel George S. Patton, the third son of blood and guts. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, oh, I can't think of it. I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, the real, not platoon. Anyway, uh, Colonel Patton was an idiot. He thought we were there to win. And we served most of our time along the Cambodian border, and we were not allowed to cross the Cambodian border. So the North Vietnamese would cross the border, hit us, and run across the border and basically snub their noses at us. And one day, Colonel Patton came on the horn, the radio, and he said, all track commanders, all track commanders, disregard you blankety-blank maps. We're going after them blankety-blanks. We rolled right across the border and basically wiped them out. So the military, once again, in its never-ending wisdom, because of who Sonny was, they couldn't court-martial him. So they promoted him to one-star general and got him out of the country. Mm. Mm. He, was a, he was a good guy. We would have followed him anywhere. It just it's leaves like, you speechless because, you know, I, yeah. we were taught growing up and aren't, you know, I grew up in the 90s. So that was my school system of indoctrination. And, uh, you know, just 
all we did was win. Even Vietnam, we sort of won. That's well, you know, we were really, top. yeah, oh yeah, fifty-eight thousand names on a wall. We prevented uh, communism from taking over Vietnam, so we won. You know, and, the, mm. and mm. Uh, which you know isn't none of that's true whatsoever. Yeah. You, know? you mean they're teaching falsehood <laughs> in schools? Yeah, yes. I'm shocked, shocked, I am. But I mean, when you were going through this, this had to have been the moment of real realization for you because you you know the army ha became the person giving you orders, almost sort of a paternal figure to you. And then to see it just turn its face on the actual warriors yeah. that were being slaughtered had to have been the moment where you realized that it, it was your best interests were no, not their best interests by any means. Absolutely. And everybody else did, too, to include the career men, the officers. Um, and, and unless you were stone cold brain dead, you had to understand that we weren't going to win. You know, you the, the on again, off again bombing of North Vietnam. The you know, part of the problem was we most of us went over for twelve month tours. The Marines always got to be better than us, so they went for thirteen months. But the North Koreans and the Viet Cong, or the North Vietnamese, and the Viet Cong, they weren't there for a tour of duty. They were they were there permanently, and I I'm glad they didn't. But I wish that we would have gone there longer than 12 months because it takes you three months to figure out what you're doing and then when you get to six or seven months you start counting the days till you go home and uh, most of us are not going to be quite as heroic when we got 24 days or 79 days uh it's just everything was convoluted and screwed up and a mess it's certainly not every gi was smoking the grass uh not every gi was doing stupid stuff a lot were but i think the majority of the men and women serving in vietnam wanted to do the right thing and got so disenchanted when they're then they couldn't do the right thing at that point they might have gone to the other side i think a lot of people turned to drugs or alcohol or something just to alleviate the pain of seeing body bags filled by their friends and knowing that they had three months four months to go and for nothing and there was no, I mean, like you said, PTSD, you know, uh, what what they call it, um, what did they call it before PTSD? It was uh, something. Shell shock? Shell, yeah, shock? shell shock. Yep. Yeah. Shell shock. It was shell shock and then PTSD. Um, and now, you know, all of these things, it was as we were doing wars, we got to learn the effects of how it affected people as they got back. So, And if they would have learned, it would have been one thing. I mean, you know, Korea was a wash. Uh, you know, the war, the conflict in Korea is still going on. There's no peace thing. It's uh, the reason why they call it the Forgotten War, right? Because they probably don't forget about it. Yep. We don't want to remember that. And probably in another generation or so, Vietnam will be there if it's not already. And, you know, the, with the debacle of pulling out of Afghanistan, you couldn't help but remember the last days of Saigon. It was the same exact idiocy. People dying for no reason, poorly planned, poorly executed. And the government officials have, what was it, 18, 19 killed in that one incident. Their blood is on their hands. So is it like, do you do you get the feeling like the, like the government failed you in a sense or? Oh, yeah. Not only um, failed all of us. 
The, uh, it really fails us if we had expectation it was going to protect us in the first place. You know, like in the in the end, it did what government always ends up doing, and that is not treating its citizens, you know, correctly, even if they do have their, their rights. That's my. That's and it's my certainly opinion. not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's a university. Yeah. I mean, JF, JFK started the Green Berets. JFK initially started the interest in Vietnam. Uh, in, in fact, the first American killed in Vietnam was a guy in the agent in my unit. Not, not that I knew him, but he was killed in 1963. And he was the first the Davis station. I don't remember his first name, but something Davis was the first American advisor killed in Vietnam. Uh, I just, the change of commanders in chief Lyndon Johnson, enough said. Uh, it's uh, Richard Nixon, enough said. It's just well, I, the commander in chief has, you know, but the buck stops with him. I don't know how good the advisors were. I've read some histories, I've talked to some people, but there's so much resources that conflict each other. I don't know whose fault it ultimately is, but I know who signs the checks, and that's the chief executive, the president of the United States, the commander in chief. So as far as I'm concerned, all four of those guys, I think four, failed us and failed, especially 58,000 names on a wall in DC, not to mention millions of Thais, Cambodians, Laotians, North Vietnamese, who we smashed into the ground for nothing. Does that sound better? Well, it's, well, I mean, that's what they did, though. It's the harsh truth, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's exactly what they did. Do you think um, when it comes to your movement into um, Christ into your life, from that transition, now you're in prison, your mind is essentially open for the first time, open-minded for the first time in a while, um, after, you know, getting out of the military and then, you know, you're constantly busy running drugs and, you know, just partying after surviving such a harsh reality. And now you're fo forced to sort of focus on it. Now, do you feel, do you feel like after experiencing that, that, uh, that's the main reason you're going to all these other, I mean, when did you start going and visiting and, and servicing all these other prisons? Uh, 1979. So shortly thereafter. After getting out of prison, yeah. I got out of prison, went to a year-long Bible school, went into what they call vocational ministry, primarily a youth ministry, but they also let me do the like, prison thing on the side. And there's also a, a national organization called Behind the Walls, and I work with them sometimes. And uh, it was started by a guy named Bill Glass, who played football for the Detroit Lions, in his words, back when they knew how to play football. And uh, when he blew out his knee, he became a public speaker. And then he said, I can't waste my time doing this. So he started the prison ministry. It's been around a long time. And when we go into prison, we'll take 30 motorcycles, uh, maybe a NASCAR, uh, you know, maybe some famous, relatively famous athlete, the obligatory cute girl in the short skirt to sing. Uh, and we just tell the guys, or the warden tells the guys, Behind the Walls is here. If you want to hear them, come out to the yard. And we do a 
hour and a half presentation, then somebody shares the gospel, and then we tell them, if you want to talk to somebody, that's what we're here for. And it's, it's a cool prison ministry, and sometimes I wish I was doing it full-time, but now with my disease, that's got some kind of limit on it. A few months ago, I was diagnosed with a blood cancer, and I'm not supposed to be in confined spaces or around big crowds, which is kind of meh. I may cheat on that every once in a while, but going into prison probably isn't one of them. But thankfully, I communicate with a lot of prisoners. Most prisoners nowadays have access to email. So I, I don't know, there's probably 100 guys and women that I communicate with all over the country. And that doesn't quite, it's not the same thing as being there. I hate going in. I, every time I go in, I hate it when the first metal bar slams. There's no sound like it in the world. But once I'm in, I hate coming out. It's just, these guys are people. Some of them were Christians when they committed their crime. Some Christians have a problem with that. It's, it's the easiest place to preach because they already know they're screwed. They already know they have a problem. And like you said, some come just to get out of the cell. Uh, but prayerfully and hopefully the word of God that I share is going to do some work in their life like it did for me. And again, I, I tell the guys, if, if you convert to Christ, that's great, but that doesn't make it your life easy. That doesn't mean you're going to find it easy when you hit the street. In fact, I think you're going to find it more difficult. And those kind of guys that come to Christ in prison, I tell them, we all tell them, don't leave Christ at the gate. It's real easy to be a Christian in prison. It's a little tougher in the free world. I like to, I like to think like when when nothing else matters, Christ matters, right? And I think like, that works. Yeah. When when you uh, like, I came to Christ when I was in a foster home. So like, <clears throat> for me, when when I look at it, and you and you don't have anything, it's <clears throat> it's easy to come come to Jesus. So like, I believe it says, I'm not sure exactly where it says it in the Bible, but like, it'll, it's easier. Um, it'll be easier for a camel to travel through the eye of a needle than it will be for a rich man to get in her, get into heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that like, and that holds so true. And that's why I think a lot of people find it easier or they find Jesus in prison. Right. And, not, and the old joke is, you know, what did Jesus do to end up in prison? And, and it, but the reason it's there is because when you, when you have nothing, like it's, it's easier to be like, you know, Hey, let's like, I, I, I don't have anything to lose. So I think there's a lot of that. That makes sense to me. Uh, I, I, there is the supernatural element that comes into it too, but oh, I think, course, yeah. The transformation, right? Yeah, and and the conviction. I mean, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. I knew nothing about the Trinity. I didn't know the difference between a Baptist and a name and claim it charismatic. <laughs> I knew nothing about nothing. And at first, when I was reading, somehow, I didn't know the Bible was 66 books. So I started at Genesis, somehow made it to the Gospels. And that was my introduction to Christ. And the first thing, humanly speaking, that attracted me about Jesus was in reading the Gospels, I realized he never had anything bad to say to the hookers. He never had anything bad to say to the crooks. The only people he blasted were the religious people. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, the people in power and how, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, you, you get diagnosed with cancer, foxhole Christianity, whatever they want to call it. I, I, th I think there are, in fact, I just heard from a friend of mine, her dad died two days ago. A week before that, he committed his life to Christ. He was always against her, against Christianity. But when the reality of death hit, 
he apparently, and that's all I can say, is apparently converted to Christianity. So there is such a thing as last day salvation, etc. But don't waste Absolutely. your life. Come to Christ now. But I, I think uh, I've been in trouble before. I, was, I think the big thing is that nowadays when the average jerk on the street hears the word Christian, he thinks homophobic, right-wing bigot, Trump yep. supported. And in some cases, sadly, that's true. It's not true of me. And I don't think it's true of most genuine Christians. Do I think homosexuality, homosexual activity is sin? Yeah. But that doesn't mean I hate homosexuals. Uh, do I think gossip is sin? Oh, yeah. But that doesn't mean I hate gossips unless they're gossiping about me. But uh, seriously, I think we screwed up and, and most people think they're aware of what we're against instead of what we're for. And I think Bible-believing Christians, if a, a flagrant homosexual came into our church, I'd shake his hand or her hand and ask him to sit with me. And I think, I'd like to think that most genuine Christians, our churches are full of people who are as lost as an Easter egg, but mm. I think most genuine Christians, they might have to grit their teeth a little bit, but I think they'd hold their hand out like they did me. But the reality is, I got out of prison, and within two weeks, I was in a church working as a minister of sanitation, otherwise known as a janitor. And when they found out my story, they said, hey, Jack, will you be my youth pastor? Will you be our youth pastor? Stupid, stupid, stupid. But I know they're thinking in their mind, if we get this ex-con drug dealer, it's going to draw kids. Would they have done that if I was a convicted pedophile? No. You know, Christians classify sin, and there's a word for that. It's called stupid. God so loved the homosexual. God so loved the abortionist. God so loved the fill in the blank. He didn't love the Republican Party. He didn't love white people. He loved the world. And sometimes we forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're exactly right. And and for me, like I'm I'm the type of person too that you know whether you come to Christ the last moment of your life or you know the the first year of your life, it's it it's all about like me. It's did you come to Christ? Because, like, in the end, all that's all that matters. So, yeah, I, I used to have a bumper sticker that said, G covers up a multitude of rust. It said, Jesus is life, everything else is details. And in essence, that's right. Because, you know, some Christians spend a whole lot of time, what do you have to believe in order to be a Christian? Why don't you go with what the Bible says? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes, not just an intellectual belief, but a trust, a clinging to, in him will be saved. Uh, I'm going to take God's word for it, not somebody else's. I think we've made very, very complicated what God has made very, very simple. Do you think that's because the focus becomes on revelation and deciphering it and trying to figure out when exactly the end is going to get here? I think that's a factor for many people. I think for Christians who take their faith seriously, which should be everybody, and desire to share their faith, witness to people, it seems like in all too many cases, they're interested in numbers and not people. How many people did you lead to the Lord this week? Three or something. Uh, I've, I'm not a numbers guy. My wife is. Uh, I've spent over, if you add them all together, I spent four years of my life as a camp speaker, Christian youth or a Christian family speaker. And I think camp is a really good thing. It can be a really bad thing 
if the camp is just interested in numbers. Slam, bam, thank you, man. Pray the prayer. You're out of here. Um, assembly line. Prosperity gospels. Uh, you know, it's like, don't get me like started. Church, church isn't free anymore because every time you go there, that's all you hear about is like, this is how we sustain it. And, you know, the like, health and well, wealth. The health and wealth thing, I think, is the most dangerous thing in the church today. Uh, and it amazes me that it's so prevalent in third world countries and still prevalent here. Well, it's what starts giving people like, you know, this person, this member is more important because their 10 percent is like has a heavier weight than than this person's 10 percent. And that's what I don't that's what I don't like about it. I've interimed. You know, been a, been a fill-in pastor. I, I preach a lot in churches. I've interim been the temporary pastor and four or five churches. And my first statement to the, who, the leadership was, I do not want to see the giving records. <laughs> I don't trust myself. It's just like the prisoners I deal with, I very, very rarely look up what they're in there for. Because I'm not sure I can be objective if he raped and murdered a three-year-old baby as opposed to killing a cop. You get what I'm saying? I, I, neither, yeah. neither of those things are good, but I just don't trust myself to be objective and I want to be objective. Right. Do you feel like it, it, in since you have seen the prison system since 79, uh, do you think that there could be improvement into who's going into these prisons uh, or the rehabilitation for when people actually get out? Of prison or introduce both of those things. Right, hitting. I I was only down four years. When I hit the street, it was really tough to adjust. A guy that's done 10, 20 years, it's really tough. And the church and other groups need to be proactively making way for these men and women getting out of prison to be reabsorbed into society. Because a lot of times the condition of parole is you can't associate with convicted felons. Well, for a lot of guys, that means I can't associate with my mom or my dad or my cousin or my brother. Uh, or a coworker. Like you can't exactly. work at a place like with another. Like so everyone, all the convicts have to be split up amongst the work, too. Absolutely. It maketh no sense to me. Uh, as far as prison itself. The only way to fix it is to spend a lot of money and the American people being the way they are. Sure, I'm for more prisons as long as they're not in my neighborhood and they don't cost anything. I think they need to do something as some some people are with these so-called nonviolent offenders. I don't think they should just get out of prison right now, but I think there should be a way to incarcerate non-violent offenders away from violent offenders because the stereotypical statement that prison is a school for advanced crime is absolutely true i was in prison for mostly drugs the guy in the cell to my right was a white guy who had never done anything legally wrong in his life came home one day found his wife in bed with the next door neighbor killed them both he got life the guy in the cell that i left happened to be a black guy who was a contract killer i don't know how many people he had killed and he was doing the same sentence. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, I'd like to see California used to have it before they started running out of money, where they basically had prisons for quote unquote nonviolent offenders, prisons for violent offenders, and prisons for really, really violent offenders. But because the prison population soared, 
And because the money wasn't there, that doesn't exist anymore. So I think the criminal justice system is an oxymoron to start with. Uh, the prison system, no matter how many toys they offer the guys or girls, the guy's got to have the want to. I have to have the desire to change. And unfortunately, this is one of my pet peeves. I have many. The prison programs you to fail in the sense like when I checked into prison, you have, you have typically a two-week uh, entry program where they give you tests, interviews, etc. So after they gave me the square pug round hole uh, test, the general IQ test, interview with the chaplain, interview with the shrink, interview with a bunch of other people, they called me into the parole board and they said, Mr. Hager, the reason why you're a dealer and a thief and a pimp is because of the bad attitude you have because of Vietnam. What have the idiots just told me? They told me it's not my fault. And sure, Vietnam contributed to it. And if I'm born in the ghetto, that's going to contribute to it. But until you man up for personal responsibility, you can't change. And if the prison says it's not your fault, come hug a tree and gather together and sing Kumbaya. And sometimes Christians are guilty of that too, but it's, you got to own it. You got to, I screwed up, I can fix it. Until you get to that point, and that can't be mandated by law, it can't be mandated by money. It has to be the individual guy, with or without faith, saying, I'm sick of this. I'm going to change my life. What do I have to do? And it's not just prisoners that do that, obviously. No, it's it's that it's that point of like, you know, almost becoming an adult, right? I don't even want to say like becoming a man, because it's not just about men, it's it's about people, like, you know, owning it owning things like for themselves because <clears throat> you're exactly right like you can't fix something unless you acknowledge that it's wrong or that it's that it's not beneficial for you you know there's a, a risk versus reward and that's how we base our decisions off of so you know you made that decision based off the rewards that you sought out in your in yourself so you know, it's you know, I'd like to think that even if I had not converted to Christianity, I'd like to think that first sentence would be my last sentence. I just didn't like doing time. Uh, I probably would have got out and continued to smoke marijuana. I don't think I would have dealt it. And I, I still would have been surprised when it was legalized because I never thought it would be legalized. But anyway, uh, but obviously my faith changed a lot of that. But I think the biggest obscenity in the country, maybe the world, is it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And yeah. again, sometimes parents do that. Well, Billy started running with the wrong crowd. Yeah, maybe he did, but Billy still made the decision. They didn't force him to do it. Um, yeah. And that runs right down the gamut. So sometimes parents, schools, well-meaning people enable that. Well, poor little Johnny, it's not your fault. After all, your parents got divorced when you were three or, or some garbage like that. Well, and you've seen it taken to extremes now, too, where like, Oh, you know, little Billy wants to dress in a skirt, and so now he's permanently a female. I mean, it's 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 the exact opposite of any type of conflict resolution. It's just like we don't want to cause any conflict. You just go and do what you need to do, and it's going to be the best pass for you because you're making your decisions now. And I know, like I'm, a, my daughter's pregnant, right? And she keeps asking me about this gender reveal party, and I'm like, do they do those anymore? <laughs> Are you guys familiar with the Babylon Bee? Yes. Yep. Yep. 
I mean, Babylon B came out for the first couple of years. It was great. But then the world started going crazier. And if I see a headline, I go, is this real or is this the Babylon B? <laughs> so they, they came out with a not the, not the Babylon B telling true stories that should have been Babylon B stuff. And it's just crazy. It's just, it's gotten insane. It's nuts. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and now I see, uh, I saw a church sign that said, uh, God is not binary. And I thought, I mean, technically, and that's true, but at the same time, it just what a what a petty thing to be focused on, too. Like, in in my opinion, it was just you know, of all things to talk about how great God is. This is the that's the angle we're taking, I guess. I, I maybe that's wrong of me to feel that way too. Uh, I think again, I think the the difference was ten years ago, maybe maybe a little longer, I could be in a family camp or a church or more importantly, to me, in my mind, a youth camp, and I could say homosexuality sin and everybody would go, yeah. But it's not academic anymore. For the last several years when I do a camp, the first thing I ask is, how many of you know a relative or a friend who is out of the closet? Every hand goes up. So a few years ago, it was academic. Now, all of a sudden, it's not academic. It's my brother, my dad, and then you got to decide what are you made of? Are you a person of conviction or a person of uh, take the easy way out? And again, that's not the chief sin. It's not the horrible sin. It's just the issue that is causing many people to hate Christians and many professing Christians to fight among themselves. Again, I'll go to the wall that homosexual activity, not temptation, but homosexual activity is sin. Just like gluttony is, just like gossip is, just like lying is. And somehow we, the church, have elevated that particular sin to be the focal point. Now, I get it. I, I think if I were not a Christian, I'd still be against somebody telling my five-year-old kid about sex. That's my job. Uh, but as a Christian, I especially... Well, how do you how do you protect your children from because what this has turned into is a very weird form of propaganda, and they've come out now through FOIA requests that have shown that uh, in the Ob early Obama years he subsidized any TV show that would have um, a, a gay character in it or transgendered or whatever, and so you'll see this pop up in the um, like late two thousands, early two thousand tens with sitcoms where it's just an influx of these characters on every TV show always popping up. And, and you realize that it wasn't a natural, it, there was nothing natural about it because uh, they, you know, there was no reason to bring that, bring their sexuality into the fray of the show, you know, but they did it so that they could get money from the government to keep producing these shows. And so I, I, you know, you see propaganda in television, you see it in schools, you see it everywhere, everywhere, you know, and, uh, you know, how, you know, how do you, how do you train up uh, your boy or child accordingly to, uh, you know. I think from day one, you know, there's no such thing as an Ill illegitimate kid. There's way too many illegitimate parents. Uh, that don't take seriously the tremendous responsibility they have. Uh, if they claim to be Christians, they think the youth pastor should do it, the pastor should do it. A parent involved with their kid is a rare breed, and I salute them and I applaud them. 
but you got to talk about the uncomfortable stuff at a much younger age than you used to. And my kids are all grown when all this stuff hit the fan. So I don't, I've not walked through those shoes, but I think there's a lot of resources that'll help you explain to your child that they're special just the way they are. And even if you're not a person of faith, that they were made special just the way they are and they don't have to cave to all the idiocy and then listen and watch your kids. If your kids are in a state school, you better be involved in that school somehow. Uh, I don't think we've reached the point nationwide where parents are going to have to pull their kids out of the public school, but I think we're getting close. Uh, and I'm not a right-wing homeschooler. We elected to homeschool our kids because it worked for us because of our travel schedule. But I don't think every parent should necessarily homeschool. But I think we're getting awful close to that. And therefore, the church better get busy proactively trying to figure out how they could help a single mom or a single dad if they elect to do that. And Christian schools should figure out a way to make it affordable for a family to send their kids to a Christian school. Well, you're abandoning the ministry. You're abandoning the mission field. Well, the Viet Cong sent out 10 and 11-year-old kids to die, but I don't want to. I don't want to put a seven-year-old kid in harm's way just so I can say he's witnessing for Christ in a dark place. It's increasingly dark. And again, I don't pretend to know where the line is, but I think were I a parent of students in any grade, I would do everything I could to get them out of the state school. And there are some great teachers in the school system, some Christians, some not. They're great that are trying to fight this, but they're tremendously outgunned, tremendously outmoneyed, tremendously out-unionized by their uh, union. And it's a tough thing. I'm glad they're there, but it's a tough thing. There's uh, challenges on all fronts, it feels like, when it comes to <laughs> Christian faith. Yeah, with I think the biggest thing I noted was how they dealt with COVID uh, and treating the churches. And uh, it was the first real attempt at taking away a church's uh, right uh, of assembly uh, that was attempted here in this country. And, uh, and thankfully, the Supreme Court took care of it. But, you know, who knows? Ten years from now, if the same Supreme Court rules that way. And once that right is gone, uh, then it'll be easy for the government to eat up the church that doesn't align with its ideology. I'm certainly not hoping that happens, but I do understand that freedom has never really helped the church. Persecution has caused the church to grow. The church in China, the church in North Korea, I'm not praying for persecution. I'm not a martyr or whatever, but uh, we've got it pretty easy. All of us have it pretty easy in this country, and I, I, I applaud most of that. And Christians get themselves in trouble. Uh, I used to do school assemblies all the time about personal responsibility, and I would tell my faith story, and I would talk about Jesus. And sometimes people would say, oh, that's so wonderful. You get to go to public school and do that. You can, but you can't close the door to the Muslim who wants to do that either. We have freedom of religion, not freedom of Christianity. And again, Christians make themselves their own worst enemy when they want Jack to go in and talk to the kids about Jesus, but they don't want the Ayman or however you pronounce it going in and talking about Islam. I, I wish they weren't, 
but they legally have the right to, and they should have the right to, in my opinion, which happens to be right. <laughs> I love you, Jack. You're great. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate oh, yeah. everything you've done. Uh, fascinating talking to you. Is there anything you would like to promote uh, before we uh, sign off for the night? Well, you mentioned the book. After 40-some years of nagging, I mean counseling, people telling me to write books. I didn't want to write. In the early days, I didn't write one because I knew in order for it to be published, I'd have to have 30 chapters on the garbage and one chapter about Jesus. When self-publishing came in, I do have a blog and stuff like that, but was there enough juice for the squeeze? There's a million books like mine with my story. And then through a string of quote-unquote coincidences, which I call Godwinks, uh, do I have time just to explain that real quick? Yes, please. Uh, I was coming home from picking something up for my wife, which is a miracle in itself that I remembered. I got the stuff that I was driving home, and I saw a big sign that said estate sale. So I turned to go to the estate sale. Then I saw a little sign that said military sale. And I said, fooey on the estate sale. Went to the military sale, got out of my car, walked up to the guy, and he was surrounded by three or four people. And the first thing I heard him say, I've just finished my 100th book. I said, well, say what? So I got to talk to this guy. And he's a retired lieutenant colonel who did two tours in Vietnam, who has a passion to interview veterans of all wars. He's always had this passion. The first book he wrote, he was 13 years old. He interviewed a 106-year-old Civil War drummer in a nursing home. Wow. And he's written these. He's written books about survivors of the uh, Burma Death March, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney at Nuremberg, POWs in Vietnam. Fascinating guy. And I took the hint, and he helped me write the book. F tremendous interviewer. He dug stuff out of me that I had totally forgotten. And uh, at the end of it, he just gave me the book and said, "That'll be fifty-eight dollars for paper or something." Doesn't charge for it. Uh, gave me the book and I started sharing it with people. And then because of the book that I read when I was in prison, I felt maybe I ought to take this book, adapt it a little bit and publish it. And my goal is to get a copy of it in every prison and jail in the United States, not because it's magical, but because hopefully God would choose to use that the way he used the book. Anyway, the book is called Captured by Grace by Jack Hager. It's available at Amazon, uh, a couple other places, but uh, not only would I like everybody listening to buy a copy, and if you if you think Christianity is a bunch of wacko stuff, cool, but buy a copy anyway and see what I have to say. And if you are a person of faith, I'd ask you to buy two copies, one for yourself and one to donate to a prison or a jail or a halfway house or something in your community. Again, not because it's the answer, but it contains the answer, and it might be used to set somebody truly free. And where can they get this book at? Amazon's the easiest place. Uh, Rodman and Holman, I think, has. No, I'm not sure who has it, but most Amazon. everybody gets it. Amazon's a good bet. Absolutely. Okay. Either uh, hardback, paperback, or uh, audio. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for coming on the show. Yes. My pleasure. My pleasure. You You're guys welcome. take care. Yep, you as well. You're welcome on anytime. Anytime. Give me a ring. All right. Have a good evening, Jack. You also got Man, Jack Hager. What a what a amazing what a hero. You know, like I don't you know? know if anybody told him, but like he's 
like the things that he's done, like um, the, everything that he's had to endure, like, and it's fascinating, fascinating story. Great stuff. I just, uh, you know, anyone that goes through Vietnam and like, I, I know everyone had like different roles they played in there, but just the whole time frame of how it was treated, how those people were treated when they got back. And uh-huh. then, you know, it was, you know, I was thinking like, I was sort of trying to compare it to Iraq and Afghanistan, but you know, I had completely forgotten how like they had to switch to plain clothes immediately when yeah. leaving because otherwise they get spit on and pelted. And I was like, that is, what a horrible thing to do, you know? Well, yeah. Cause like, I mean, when we came back from Afghanistan. It was like, there was like a sense of pride, you know, like, Hey, we, we defended against those nine 11 attacks, yeah. you know, like we, you know, we're, we're doing it, but like these guys came back and nobody was having it. Like, like people were, were standing up like, Oh, wait until I see these soldiers, these soldiers just like, yeah. you know, I haven't, I haven't seen my family and get jobs, you know, people wouldn't hire them. You know, think right. How much that's changed now. And I don't know if that's, you know, we, and that could be because we just developed into this culture of war too here. We're at, we're at war all the time. Yeah. So now there's a, a, there is an economy built based off of that as well. In, in some instances that's good because, you know, these people can um, get help if they need help. And they have a support system and these support groups now in place that weren't in place before, you know, especially not in Vietnam. You know, back then it was right. just sort of a suck it up, don't talk about it. I grew up with, um, uh, he was sort of like an uncle to us growing up, Rob Christensen, like the nicest guy. I And I knew him to the time I was like 10. Nicest guy I was in our church. Um, real sort of quiet, but he'd hang out and watch sports and we'd go to rodeos and, and then, uh, he died in a river accident and it turned out like he'd been in Vietnam. My mom told me this he had agent orange is right. Is that what it was? Agent orange yeah. poured yeah. down his neck uh-huh. and then, uh, and then, you know, like just could not keep his marriage together because of the PTSD, you know, and, and like the journal he kept was, you know, it was horrible for his kids to find all this stuff, you know. And oh, I couldn't imagine. And um and I think like, man, what that guy was a hero every day because he went through all of that. And then still when I met him, you know, and, and I was a kid, and kids are pretty good judge of characters, you know, and like he was just a sweet man. And he went out there all those demons inside of him and made the best attempt to be the best person he could be that day. And I feel like, um, you know, you go through something like that and then prison and then what he's done giving other people hope. Cause that's a lot of it. What it is, is no, you don't have any hope. You know? Like you go, you go overseas, right. And like, you're there and you, you're still living your life. Like, there's these laws that I have to follow, but you're over there breaking all of those laws. <laughs> so it's it, like, it puts you in a really confusing state, you know? Like, so you come back here and you're just like, okay, well I broke the law, but I was supposed to, you know, it's, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, 
well, you're, you're trained. You're trained to break the law. That's you're, yeah. You're trained to be good at breaking the law. You know, or yeah. you know, I don't want to say law. It's just you know, it's not nat. It's not a natural human thing. To and then you come do. back and be like, nope, don't do that anymore. Now, now it's a. Now we got to follow the law. <laughs> um, I I have respect for all of those people that come back home and you know deal with it and have to deal with it you know whether they deal with it right or wrong you know who i i don't have to deal with it so who am i to say if it's right or wrong that's my opinion on it is like kudos to you for making that attempt every day because it can't you know and that's where you know when you yeah. talk about jesus and the hope of washing it clean you know that's a that's a beautiful hope and that's why i get so mm -hmm. mad you know people in the comments they you know they'll dog on christianity and it, i think it's it's i get upset because if it makes someone have hope to be a better person what do you care like honestly what do you care it's mm -hmm. good for them they're a better Amen. person because of it now <laughs> yeah Instead of, yeah it's, it's a good thing you know like it, it yeah you're right you're exactly right like it provided hope when there was no hope left you know like i like it i like it all That's right gentlemen thank you mike for being on this show i appreciate yeah, uh, thank you appreciate your insight on yeah. this too and once again thanks to jack hager uh yeah. check out his book on amazon well we'll put we'll put it in the uh show notes um on the video Very we nice. post on youtube so all right uh have a good uh, week everybody we'll see you next week yep. you as well <laughs>